0: Erin Patterson, the Aussie woman who is accused of killing three people via a beef Wellington, has pleaded not guilty. We have everything you need to know from Australia. For that and everything else worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Philip Tolley and welcome to the Long Read from Stuff. This week's story is called The Changing State of Social Housing. It's by Ethan Te ora, who joins me now. Kia ora. Kia ora, Philippa. So, how did you get to hear these wonderful stories, without giving too much away, about this great and diverse group of people?
1: Yeah, so Dwell are the the housing provider who've built the development and over the past couple of years, I've done a couple of stories with them and they they trusted me to come in and meet people as they moved into the development.
0: And you've got some really lovely stories that you are going to tell us about. But the other thing about housing, it's really fraught and emotional, isn't it? Was that something you came across writing this as well?
1: Definitely, particularly um, public housing. We have almost 30,000 people on the wait list and the role of community housing within the larger public housing ecosystem is something I tried to consider in this story.
0: Thanks, Ethan. Well, now here Ethan is reading his own story, The Changing State of Social Housing.
1: Part 1. Disconnection. David Pask soon realised he was not the only person on the peninsula living in a car. He would drive around Wellington's north coast and recognise the same rundown jalopies, parked in exactly the same spots. Often the exteriors were sea-spray faded, conspicuous beside clean holiday vans, unlikely to be roadworthy, let alone fit for habitation. In those cars he saw the same sad-looking guys, Roughly his age, haggard, unkempt, afraid, struggling to make a home. I would try to approach them, he said, but they didn't want to know you. They thought you were trying to interfere or you wanted to rob them. The crisis is much bigger than is implied by a smattering of rust buckets parked around Scorching Bay. It is estimated more than 100,000 people nationwide live in severe housing deprivation, effectively on the doorstep of homelessness. About 3,600 among that count are people considered to be living without shelter, some of them in cars or on the streets. There are not enough state homes and almost 30,000 people on the wait list. PASC wasn't officially waiting, at least not yet. At 69, the retired chef is a meandering conversationalist, with a gruff smoker's voice. It is hard to imagine him keeping to himself for long. Minutes from where he parked, there were recent memories. The sight of his last substantial restaurant job, when he was head chef at Scorcharama. I had lots of money, he said. I had none. I had lots of money again. I had none. I had lots of money again, and then none. And then it gets too hard to recover. Instead, he did what he had in kitchens for nearly five decades. Improvise. Inside the 1996 Nissan Sefero, he cooked rudimentary meals on a small camping stove. Beans, stir fries, noodles. The ocean was his fridge. He buried perishables, cured meats, butter and milk in a tightly sealed container at the water's edge. To prevent the makeshift icebox floating away, he would fortify the hole overnight with driftwood. Not that he was always parked up. On Sundays, he visited his children in Kilburnie for a family meal, which he often cooked himself. Nor was he always homeless. For several months, he lived at Loafer's Lodge, the central city hostel that would later be the scene of a fatal fire. He bounced between unaffordable private rentals In between, he gravitated back to Scorching Bay. Tourists ignored him. Daily joggers avoided eye contact. From time to time, the police would rap on his window, turning a blind eye, inevitably, to his vehicle's expired registration. Eventually, the car needed repairs. A crack in the windscreen was the death knell. The cost to re-register the vehicle and make the car roadworthy would be more than it was worth. So he scrapped it and moved into another another flophouse late last year, which the owner converted into emergency housing in the weeks before Christmas. As part of that transfer, almost as if by accident, he ended up on the waitlist. He didn't think much of the change until he got a call a few months later. The person on the line asked if he would like to view a one-bedroom home in Kilburnie. They told me it was something called community housing, he said.
0: Today on Newsable, we go inside the courtroom where Erin Patterson pleaded not guilty to murder charges related to that infamous Beef Wellington lunch, plus why it's a good time to be a first home buyer, and the dis-battle between Kendrick Lamar and Drake. For everything that's worth talking about, find and follow Newsable wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Part 2. Putting the community in housing. Alison Cadman knows how to create the conditions that turn a house into a home, the strong joinery where housing and community connect. There are 18 other homes in the Kilburnie development in addition to the house PASC moved into. Around back, 10 more homes are under construction, along with a community room and a communal garden. Taken together, those buildings will form a community unto themselves. One located in the heart of Kilburnie just minutes by foot to supermarkets, cafes, schools, and other amenities. Even the landlord has a new home. Dwell, the community housing trust Cadman runs, has moved its operations into an office space on the ground floor, facing onto the street rather than into the development to respect the privacy of its tenants, Cadman says. Why pay off someone else's mortgage when we can pay off our own? She jokes. The growth of the Kilburnie development mirrors the rising star of community housing providers. The politics of social housing are more complicated than ever. At a time when there are fiery debates over planned state housing developments and a suspicious fire, community providers continue to carve out a necessary niche. Of course, political decisions have led directly to that rise as well. In 2013, the previous national government sold off state homes and reduced who was eligible for state housing. It also extended the income-related rental subsidy, otherwise known as the IRRS, to community housing providers. Until then, exclusively for state housing tenants, that subsidy pegs a tenants' rent at 25% of their income, with the government topping up the rest. Despite perceptions, government policies haven't always helped community housing providers, Cadman says. The housing relies mostly on donations and private funding, Dwell's next development in Newtown will consist of between 40 and 50 homes. And it wants to do more. We are ready to build more, Cadman says. There are so many more people we could house. Part 3. Across a vast ocean. Fatima Atibish didn't seek refuge 16,000 kilometres around the world to be denied guests in her own home. Even while her world sometimes seemed to contract, the family has continued to expand. One of her sons has married since the family came to New Zealand in 2019 as refugees. But in emergency housing, where she lived for over a year, the rules were clear. No guests, not even her free adult sons. I want to bring them into my home, she says, and cook for them. It's what we do but it's against the rules. She didn't mind the temporary accommodation otherwise. A standalone house rather than a motel, and quieter than anticipated, perhaps due to those same rules. The family has endured long periods of separation, some of which are still ongoing. Idlib is their home. It was the focus of fighting in the early phases of the Syrian civil war. Caught in the crossfire of those initial attacks, her husband lost his life. In 2011, the family fled across the border to Beirut. They lived there for eight years, a period during which her children weren't able to go to school. Her daughter would eventually seek asylum with her husband in Switzerland. She has three sisters, one of whom is now in Germany. The other two remain in Syria. Attie Bish came instead to New Zealand with her four sons. But life in the new country, she soon discovered, was even more expensive. Rent, at $800 a week, was more than she could afford. Eventually, she ended up in emergency housing with her youngest son. Before the family left Syria, she worked as a hairdresser. Now, with rent no longer an existential worry, she thinks about working again. Language is a big barrier, she told me through a translator. Eventually, she hopes to save enough money to help her sisters move from Idlib. In the meantime, she is creating a small bridge across language barriers, getting to know her neighbors across the hall. Part four, across the hallway. Salem Kingi knows her children are polar opposite personalities. My daughter, she says, she's really independent. My son, he doesn't like me to even look at anyone else. Kailani, too, prefers to play on her own, exploring uncharted areas of the new home. Kaimani, free, is fiercely protective of his mother and doesn't like her to leave his sight. Even when he has her undivided attention, he clings to her. When that attention strays, even for just a moment, he might scream or slam a door. The family have been through a lot. Years of housing insecurity took them from Auckland to Timaru, then finally to Wellington. In Auckland, they spent several months in emergency housing. However, in Timaru, even emergency housing was in short supply. They told me to stay where we were, she says, or we'd be out on the streets. Instead, she flew to Wellington with her children, with time to just pack one suitcase for herself and her kids. There, they stayed with her sister, sleeping on the couch for several months. Women's Refuge supported Kingie in her search for a home and helped the family source furniture. Everything was donated. Couches, beds and whiteware. We'd be sitting on the floor otherwise, Kingie says. After a month in the house, there's only been one drawback so far. The recently unusable oven. A mishap involving one of her children resulted in the door being broken. It was misadventure rather than temper, Kingy clarifies. I don't understand how my daughter did it, she says. Part five. Welcome to the neighborhood. For all its obvious merits, the community housing model still has detractors. It has sometimes been called a form of privatisation by stealth. Public Housing Futures spokesperson Vanessa Cole believes the previous national government intended to create a market of providers for social housing, thereby minimising the state's role. This was consistent with a neoliberal approach, she says, of transforming essential public goods into charity services. Indeed, the housing provider Dwell has its origins in faith-based charities, forming originally from several inner-city churches. State ownership, on the other hand, is more democratic, advocates argue. Even if the government of the day chooses to sell off state houses, we have the power to vote them out. But Community Housing Aotearoa Chief Executive Paul Gilbert doesn't think the orthodox political binary is useful. People jump into a politicisation narrative, he says. Labour builds it, national sells it. I think that's extremely unhelpful. He points to two layers of additional protection embedded in the community housing sector. Registered community housing providers are charitable and therefore regulated by the Department of Internal Affairs through charity services. Providers who access the IWRS are regulated also by the Community Housing Regulatory Authority with oversight from the Ministry of Housing and Urban Development. Cole still believes community housing has an important role to play. But we need to ensure that the government is not washing their hands of their responsibility, she says. On this point, Gilbert agrees. The state must not shirk its obligation to house people. Whatever the case, there are now about 12,000 community housing homes, with tenants receiving the IRRS people who might otherwise be homeless or languishing on the state housing waitlist. David Pask is one of them, and he's still adjusting to his new surroundings. He lives on the ground floor, directly beneath the two families. His home includes a modest kitchen, equipped with an actual stove. It's about the same size as the kitchen in his very first restaurant, opened in 1975. He put $800 towards that fit-out, a sizeable portion of which went towards creating a partition between the kitchen and an intimate dining area, seating 16 people at full bustle. Now, Pask is looking forward to cooking for other people again, even if just for his own children. Wet meals, he calls those dishes, pastas, curries, along with other meals easily frozen. But he doesn't entirely rule out one last adventure in a restaurant of his own, A friend scouts for locations on his behalf, ready to pounce on a convenient site, one with the correct plumbing already in place. In a few years he'll be past it, he reckons. But not yet. It is perhaps the most precious thing given to him by a stable home. Possibility. Nowadays he hears the kids playing upstairs and snippets of conversation drift in from outside. Maybe, He'll even get to know the neighbours this time.
0: That was The Changing State of Social Housing on the Long Read From Stuff written and read by Ethan T. produced by me, Philip Tolley the sound for this episode was edited by Connor Scott if you listen via our website you can hear this story and more like it on the Long Read podcast and that's available on all the usual platforms if you liked what you heard please do give us a 5 star rating and a review it really helps other listeners find us this story was made possible by the subscribers to the post. If you want to support more beautifully told New Zealand stories, go to the post.co.nz. Thanks for listening. Ka kite anō. This pod took time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit staff.co.nz/support.